Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. The scripture reading today is from Psalm 22, verses 1 through 5 and 21 through 31. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our ancestors trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he did not despise or abhor the afflictions of the afflicted, He did not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will pay before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. To him, indeed, shall all who sleep in the earth bow down. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, and I shall live for him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, saying that he has done it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a few moments for silent reflection. Let us pray together. Gracious God, as we contemplate this ancient psalm, which articulates both an astounding amount of authenticity with pain, sorrow, and frustration, some of us can identify with that deeply right now. Wherever we're in pain or frustrated, wherever there's loss or sorrow, wherever there's grief or suffering, would you use this as a time of healing? And as this psalm moves toward hope and even ends with the psalmist proclaiming they will go forward to tell others about a God who rescues, would you wake us up to your grace and send us out to be outposts of your healing power? For some of us right now, our pain shouts so loudly it's hard to hear anything else. Our confusion is so profound and palpable that it's hard to make sense of anything else. Or maybe we're just bored. 
or lethargic or apathetic. For some of us, our anger or our depression are so loud that it's hard to focus on anything else. For others of us, our addictions and our distractions have us wandering. Perhaps we don't even know we're lost. But however we find ourselves right now, help us to see that we have far more in common than we realize. On one hand, each of us is beautiful, created in your image and likeness, bearing dignity and honor. And at the same time, none of us has it all together. Not one of us gets it all the time. We are what we might describe as a beautiful mess. But however we find ourselves this morning, help us to see that you see us and you know us in all our complexities and contradictions, the ways we get it, the ways we don't get it, the ways we're holding it all together, the ways we feel like we're coming undone, you see it all. And your response is to move toward us in the sacrificial, self-giving love of your son, Jesus Christ. So whether for the first time or the thousandth time, open our eyes to your grace and our hearts to your love, our minds to your truth, and our lives to your powerful presence. We pray these things for our good, for your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, many of you know I, one of my favorite things to do in life, and one of the things that's probably kept me sane during COVID, is swimming in La Jolla Cove a few times a week at sunrise. And one of the things that happens during the winter at La Jolla Cove and throughout the beaches of San Diego are that the surf just continues to pick up and pick up. And the surf gets so big that not only are the waves 10 feet high, but they're as wide as a house. It's just a lot of water. It's a lot of water to get received on your body as you're trying to paddle out through it into the open ocean. And so it's pretty common, actually, these days in La Jolla Cove, where very experienced swimmers, you know, experienced triathletes, Ironman triathletes, are getting rescued by the lifeguards. And one of the reasons is that these big waves come into the cove and it creates a punch bowl effect, a whirlpool effect, and then there are these really dangerous rocks on one end. And the rocks seem to be waiting for you as a swimmer with jaws wide open ready to gobble you up. And it doesn't help that the swell and the current of the water is pushing you toward those rocks. Now here's what experienced swimmers in La Jolla Cove will tell you. is right before you get to the rocks... There's actually a current that tries to take you out to sea. But if you get into that current, it's terrifying because it feels like you're getting pulled out to sea because you are. So what you do is you fight that current. You can't win against the current. You get exhausted. Then you get pushed into the rocks, and that's where the rescue takes place. But here's what the experienced swimmers will teach you. If you can just tell yourself to relax when you feel that current going out, this is your time to go with the flow. And as soon as it's brought you out of the danger zone, you can reapproach the beach from another direction. You know, as soon as my friend told me that this week, after she had been rescued by the lifeguards, it had me think about how counterintuitive that is, that you're being in a, in a current, swept out to sea, terrified and exhausted, and the last thing you want to do is go with the flow. You want to fight. You want to struggle. But that's actually the worst thing for you in that moment, and it, it exhausts you. And here's where I thought that that lands with this passage today. Is that we live in a world with waves and wind and currents that are constantly blasting your life and mine. That are pulling us in one direction or another. 
constantly trying to push our heads under the water. And the question is, how are you navigating that reality in your life? In other words, how do you weather the storms of life with all their difficulty and confusion? And instead of giving up or becoming more cold and bitter and apathetic, you actually become more engaged, more hopeful, more resilient. And today, Psalm 22, one of the most quoted psalms, one of the most famous psalms, even if you have not been around the church very much or the Bible very often, you've probably heard things like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 comes and says, consider the ancient art of lament. Specifically, we're going to consider four things about lament today. The pattern of lament, the person of lament, the power of lament, and the proclamation of lament. Okay, I'm sorry it's not a Trinitarian sermon today with only three points. we got four. There's a bonus point for you in there, but I did nail it with the alliteration. Okay, so first, the pattern of lament. Thanks for that laugh, Matt. Appreciate it. We touched on this last week, so I want to come briefly at it from another perspective. And I brought in some quotes from my friend Dr. Martin Luther King to help us understand a little better. The pattern of lament. The pattern of lament is honest complaint with hope. If it's only complaint, then it's wallowing in negativity. It becomes fatalistic. It becomes, I'm drowning and there's no hope for me, so why should I even try? If it's only hope without recognizing the difficulty, then it simply becomes platitudes and escapist and minimizing. You know, they're there, everything's going to be okay. And you're saying, no, actually things are not okay. So lament is the way to hold on to the groundation, the grounding of our reality and the reality of our circumstances and ground it in the reality of God's grace and presence, the power that promises to never leave us or forsake us. So look at this in Psalm 22. Authentic complaint. Verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, don't miss the fact that this is Scripture written in the Bible. The Bible is a text that carries the Word of God that actually articulates what it's like to feel abandoned by God. Listen to the authenticity there. Have you ever felt like you were praying and God was simply silent? Have you ever said, I'm going through difficult circumstances. God, where are you right now? Scripture gives you all sorts of latitude to articulate authentically the reality of your experiences. It goes on. I cry by day and there's no answer. I cry by night and there's no rest. You know what that is? That's a lot of tears. God says, not leave your worries at the door and come to me. God says, bring all of your worries to me. God says, not dry your eye, don't worry, everything will be better by and by. God says, bring your tears from me. Though I know I will heal all things, I will listen to you and walk with you now. The psalmist goes on. I'm in isolation. You know that pain and sorrow do this to you. You can feel alone in a room full of people when you're going through pain. And there's frustration. Do you know what it's like to pray and hear no answer? Psalm 22 comes and says, you are in good company. Martin Luther King, in a sermon he gave called Shattered Dreams, asks the question, what do you do in the midst of your shattered dreams? And here is a man, a 
a pastor, a theologian, a philosopher, an activist, Martin Luther King, who has faced plenty of shattered dreams in his own life, for our country, for our world, whether it's racial relations or the industrial military complex in the United States with the Vietnam War going on at the time. Everywhere he looked, whether it was inside or outside, were shattered dreams. And then as a pastor, he's ministering to people who are dealing with fragments of their own lives being shattered. And he asks the question, what do you do in the midst of your shattered dreams? He suggests three ways that we habitually deal with these things. He says, some people distill all our frustration into a core of bitterness and resentment right? The world is hard, we get harder. The world is tough, we get tougher. He says, but beware, because this path is likely to develop a callous attitude, a cold heart, bitter hatred toward God, toward others, and toward yourself. He said, it poisons the soul and scars the personality. It harms you more than anybody else. And then he goes on to cite the medical literature of the day, which we know far more about now, where resentment and bitterness lead to all sorts of physical ailments. He says another route that we go to is we withdraw completely into ourself and we become completely isolated. We become detached, too unconcerned to care, and too passionless to love. We just merely exist. We detach. Or, he says, we take the fatalistic approach. We see ourselves as helpless orphans cast into the terrifying immensities of space. There's nothing we can do about it. It's all going to play out the way it's going to play out. We might as well just get into the fetal position and try to struggle through this thing. And he says, what's the answer? The answer lies in our willing acceptance of unwanted and unfortunate circumstances, even as we still cling to a radiant hope. Our acceptance of finite disappointment, even as we adhere to infinite hope. Do you hear what he's saying? Lament. It's an acceptance of the circumstances you don't want while you hold on to an infinite hope. He says, only in this way shall we live with the fatigue, without the fatigue of bitterness and the drain of resentment. The pattern of lament also has another piece to the pattern. In the midst of difficulty, you're invited to look backward at what God has done and look forward to what God will do. So you hear in this psalm, in verse 4, even in the midst of the crying and the tears and the abandonment and the isolation, the psalmist, who is, by the way, believed to be King David, says, Our ancestors trusted in God and you delivered them. They cried to you and they were rescued. They were not disappointed. They were not put to shame. In the midst of his current disappointment and confusion, he looks back and locates his story in the larger story of God at work. I'm going through difficulty now, and I'm wondering where you are, God. But I'm remembering our people went through difficulty in the past, and you showed up. In fact, as you read through the Old Testament, whether it was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or the people of God moving through the wilderness toward the promised land, almost always when God shows up and rescues or provides, rescues them from danger, rescues them from enemies, rescues them from themselves, provides food or shelter, whatever they need, oftentimes one of the things the people do is they make a memorial in that place. 
And I think they made a memorial so that they could have something to hang on to the next time something difficult happens. And you begin to reason with yourself. You preach the gospel to your own heart. You use rationality and logic and you say, the same God that cared for me and provided for me then will take care of me now. One of our friends in this church, Rita, beloved Rita, who is currently in Texas, undergoing all that you are reading about in Texas right now, told me this story this week, and she said I could share it with you. She texted me on Friday, and she said, hey, Matt, can I share with you some good news? Now, look, I will always make time for good news. I said, of course. And I called her, and she said, I said, well, how are you doing? She said, well, you know, we're in Texas right now. She lives here, but she's there for several months. And, you know, the electricity went out, and the pipes froze, and one of the pipes burst. And I've been in the house without any water for several days. And you try to call a plumber, but there's no plumber that will even answer the phone because everybody in the city is in the same situation. And if you can get a plumber, they can't get any parts because all the parts are being used up, and they can't be distributed right now through the supply chain. She said, so I remember that at church on Sundays, we pray the Lord's Prayer, and we say, give, me this day, give us this day our daily bread. So Rita started to rationalize to herself. I asked God for everything I need today, and this is what God gave me. Apparently, all that I have right now is all that I need, and I'm going to be okay. She still called the plumber. She still did the work. She still had to walk down to the neighbor's house who still had water to get buckets of water to bring them back to her house every day. But she had a new reference point. And so as she's telling me this story, she says, you know, and then the, you know, I'm, well, Rita, I'm still waiting for the good news. So far, this just sounds like all bad news. And she said, well, a plumber did come. And not only was it a plumber, but it was a great plumber. And he took care of everything and checked the lines. And everything is good now. And I said, Rita, to me, the miracle is not that God brought you a great plumber when none were available, although that's awesome. To me, the miracle is the way that you have grown and developed to be able to weather a storm like this and face adversity and extreme stress and discomfort. And instead of becoming bitter or detached, to remain resilient and hopeful. This is a picture of good news at work. And then I said, Rita, I'm going to encourage you. And Rita, I hope you're a part of the service right now. Hello and good morning. Good afternoon to you. I said, do something to do future Rita a favor. Do something to help you remember that God came through for you today. Write yourself a note that says, don't open unless you're in trouble. Or go, you know, go online and get yourself some little tchotchke ornament that's a faucet, you know, or something. Just to remember that God came through for you today. So that when you develop spiritual amnesia, you can say, God cared for me before. Certainly God is at work in my life right now, even if it's ways that are imperceptible to me. You look back. But you also look forward. There's a hope that looks forward. In verse 26, even as the psalmist is articulating their discomfort and their difficulty and their sorrow and their sadness, they say, verse 26, And still, I believe that the poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek shall know and praise the God who created them. Verse 27, our hearts will live forever. There's going to be this vibrant characteristic to life in the future, even if right now it feels like it's all falling apart. He says, all the ends of the earth, all the families of the world will worship, will be reunited with the God that created them. 
Lament is an honest and authentic complaint as you hold on to hope. You look back and you look forward. Now, how do we lament with hope? What do we hope in? And scripture comes to you and says, it's not what you hope in. It's who you hope in. You see, every one of us has something in our lives that we hope in that will tell us that I'm going to be okay. That tells you that your life has meaning. That you're going to make it. That you are lovable. That you are acceptable. That you belong. That you're beautiful. That you're good enough. That you're strong enough. That people love you. Whatever that thing is, that's your, that's your hope. And scripture comes and says, it's not exactly what you hope in, but it's who you hope in that will change everything. Which brings us to the person of lament. You see, Psalm 22 is an extremely mysterious psalm. It starts in complaint, and it ends in hope. But in the middle part, the part we didn't read today, it describes extremely brutal circumstances. I'll give you an example. Verses 6 through 8 describe the psalmist as out in public where people are jeering and mocking him. Verse 17, people are gloating over him and scorning him. In verse 15, it's a description of someone who's dying. As it says, he's dying of thirst. His tongue has swollen up and is beginning to choke him. Verse 17, he's emaciated. You can see his bones, every one of them. In verse 16, it says, his feet and his hands are pierced by a shaft or a spear or a sword. What's happening to him? This is not the description of someone who's merely having a bad day or going through a rough patch. When you look closely, this is a description of a public execution. In verse 18, it says, they cast lots for my clothes. And everybody in that generation would know that when you're executed, the executioners get the clothes. This is an execution. Now, here's the reason why this is an incredible mystery. Follow me here. Where in the world was the psalmist, King David, ever publicly executed? Where did he have a public trial? Where was he publicly executed? We know more about King David than almost anyone else in history or in ancient antiquity. And there's nothing like that that shows up in his entire life. What's going on here? The mystery goes even further. In verse 21, he says, I will tell of your name, for he has not despised the suffering of the afflicted one. He listened to my cry for help. In other words, David says... I will be delivered from death, or I have been delivered from death, and look at the results. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship him. What does that even mean? David is saying, I was about to be executed, but God delivered me from death, and because of that, all the nations of the earth will be reunited with God. Are you catching this? How could David possibly imagine that his deliverance from death, no matter how heroic or how dramatic or how miraculous, could possibly lead to the transformation of all the nations and families and generations on earth. Do you see how amazingly enigmatic and mysterious this is? What's the solution to this mystery? Later on in Acts chapter 2, verse 31, the apostle Peter is giving this sermon to thousands of people in the middle of Jerusalem. And here's how he solved the riddle. 
He said, being a prophet, David foresaw and spoke of the Christ. David, in his affliction, was able to say, even now I believe that God understands my pain and brokenness. To be a Christian means to say, in the midst of all that's confusing to me, in the midst of all that's frustrating in this world, in the midst of all the loss that we have to go through, God understands it. God has taken it upon himself. God has done something about it. In fact, Jesus Christ understood this psalm to be about his death on the cross. When Christ is on the cross, one of the psalms, one of the pieces he quotes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Christ is on the cross, it is he for whom, as he's being executed, the executioners, the Roman soldiers, tore his garments and cast lots. See, Christianity is unique. It comes to you and says, God is not all-powerful and yet far away. Omnipotent but not imminent. And it doesn't come to you and say, God is really close to you and he wishes he could do something about it, but gosh, he can't because he's powerless. Imminent but not omnipotent. Christianity comes to you and says, the God of the universe knows your pain and sees it, enters into it, and takes it upon himself. The God of the universe has taken all of your pain and discomfort and sorrow and brokenness, the things that have been done to you, the things you've done to yourself, the things you've done to others, he sees it all and he knows it all on the individual level and on the global level. And his response is not to say yuck or to say you made your bed, now you lie in it. His response is to take it all upon his shoulders on the cross and let it crash over him like a great wave. And in his resurrection, he shows that the final word on this world is not death, but life. It's not sorrow, but joy. He dealt a death blow to death itself. And so the person of lament is actually the anchor for all hope. But how do you access it? And that's what leads us to the power of lament. The power of lament tells you that God is with you in your sorrows now, and God will redeem even this moment which gives you hope for the future. The cry of Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Gives us the greatest companion in our suffering. You know, in my own personal sorrows, in my own personal lament, and in all of the times where I've gotten to minister to people who are in deep sorrow or loss or distress, I can tell you, the main thing that you need in times of loss or sorrow or suffering. It feels like what you really want are answers. And of course you have questions. Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening now? But you can actually make it by without answers. In fact, there often aren't answers that are sufficient for questions that are so deep. You can make it by without answers. But you know what you cannot make it by without? Companionship. Company. A friend who will walk with you and sit with you and cry with you. It's almost impossible to make it through alone. And the cross of Christ 
this cry of Psalm 22 tells us that God is your companion in your suffering. That God himself has suffered. That God knows what it's like to go through suffering. David Watson, who was a Christian leader some time ago, was dying of cancer when he wrote this. He said, Someone once said to me, There cannot be a God of love, because if there was, and he looked upon the world, his heart would break. But the gospel points to the cross and says, It did break. Someone once said to me, It's God who made the world. It's he who should bear the load. The gospel points to the cross and says, He did bear the load. God weeps with those who weep. He feels our pain and enters into our sorrows with his compassionate love. And so the power of lament is to join your sufferings with Christ. See that he enters into your suffering. He suffers on your behalf and he suffers with you. God who knows what it's like to be you. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A God who knows what it's like to lose the closest relationship in the world. A God who knows what it's like to feel like God is not there. You join your sufferings to Christ now. And remember, you are not alone. He has promised to never leave you or forsake you. God is with you in your sorrows now. And he gives you hope for the future. Because Jesus' sufferings did not end in mindless, pointless, endless torture. Nor were they simply the light fading dimmer and dimmer until it was extinguished altogether. The suffering of Christ means that our suffering actually has a future. Just as the resurrection of Christ redeemed even his suffering and his sorrows, so shall the coming kingdom of God redeem even this present moment of pain and sorrow. Martin Luther King, in one of his sermons, said, Our capacity to deal creatively with shattered dreams is ultimately determined by our faith in God. However dismal and catastrophic may be the present circumstances, we know that we are not alone. For God dwells with us in life's most confining and oppressive places. And even if we die there without having received the earthly promise, he shall lead us down that mysterious road called death, and at last to that indescribable city he has prepared for us. His creative power is not exhausted by this earthly life, nor is his majestic love locked within the limited walls of time and space. The Christian faith makes it possible for us to nobly accept that which cannot be changed, to meet disappointments and sorrow with an inner poise, and to absorb the most intense pain without abandoning our sense of hope. For as we know, as Paul testified, in life or in death, that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Companionship in your sufferings and hope for the future. Which then leads to the proclamation of lament. Because you see, Psalm 22 begins with honest complaint. There's no minimizing, there's no escaping, there's no explaining it. But it leads toward hope, and all becomes praise toward the end. 
the psalmist begins to remind himself, God does not ignore our suffering. God listens to and sees the difficulties of our lives. And on the cross, a Christian can say, God has dealt with pain and sin and even death. And as that begins to sink into your life and to mine, it gives you a new mission altogether. To not only allow God to heal those broken parts of our lives and our stories, but a new mission of telling the good news of God's rescue to others. God calls us in to love us, to comfort us, to transform us, to heal us, and then sends us out to reach and serve others. And what is the proclamation? I would like to suggest it's at least twofold. On one hand, we know the content of the proclamation at the very end in verse 31. He has done it. This, echoes, this is echoed later when Jesus from the cross will say, it is finished. That God has done for us all that is required for us to be reunited with God. For us to be reconnected with one another. For us to be redirected outward in new meaning and new mission and new purpose. God has done it all. He says, I have drunk the cup of sorrows to the very bottom so that you can enter into my joy. It is finished. On one hand, I'd imagine anyone listening to this right now, in person or online, has probably had someone in your life who has proclaimed this sort of good news to you. Now, I'm not talking about shoving your faith down someone else's throat or manipulating anybody, but I am talking about sharing the good news of what God has done in your life. You know, we naturally share good news with other people. When you hear a new song or you try a new restaurant, that experience, when you fall in love, that experience is not complete until you share it with somebody else. A joy shared actually enhances the experience. I was reading through the Nextdoor app for our neighborhood earlier, and, you know, it'll say, well, there's parking's rough, and there'll be like 10 comments, and anybody see my cat? And there's like 30 comments. And then, can anyone recommend a good pizza place in North Park? And there's 117 comments. Right? We love to share good news with one another. Who's in your life that you can share good news with right now? It doesn't mean fixing their problems. It does not mean giving them unsolicited advice. But it probably means keeping them company. If they're open to it, it might mean sharing one of the ways that God has cared for you in the past. Or it could simply be, mean being the presence of Christ to them. You know, I was sharing with Lori earlier today. Most of us will probably not experience God in a burning bush today like Moses did, okay? Most of us will probably not experience God in a booming voice coming in the thunder of the clouds like at Jesus' baptism. But all of us have the opportunity to experience God in one another. Who has God put in your life today where as God has moved toward you, you can move toward them? As God walks with you and gives you companionship in your struggles, you can offer that as well. And as you do, it makes your own experience more lively. It makes your life more vibrant. It transforms the world out there, but it actually rewrites the story in here as well. And that, my friends is the pathway of lament. As we walk through the real world in real time with our honest struggles and questions in the larger story of God at work in the midst of it all, and we do it together. Renew Church, 
That is my hope and my prayer for this community. That each of us would experience that kind of life, especially in times such as these. That each of us would be known as the safest and most approachable person in our neighborhood or our workplace for others who are going through difficult times. For our neighbors up and down 30th Street and University Street, even to say things like, I'm not sure if I believe like those people do. I'm glad they're here. Those people are here for the benefit of the entire neighborhood. And as we do, the world is transformed, and so are we. Let's pray together. Gracious God, I pray now that you'd help us to sink deep into the ocean of your grace, however we find ourselves in this very moment. For some of us, our complaint, our pain, it's so loud, it's almost hard to put it into words. Some of us are so exhausted of carrying around our frustrations. Maybe we've given up on you, or we've given up on ourselves. Help us to see you have not given up at all. In fact, you are present as close to us as the air we breathe right now. For some of us, we wonder if these things could possibly be true. There's a part of us that says, I wish that was true. I wish there was a God who actually created this world in its beauty, sees it in its brokenness, and cares enough to do something about it. I want to see that. I want to experience that. So however we find ourselves now, help us to see that you are already running toward us. And help us to take just one step toward you for our healing and the healing of the whole world. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.